I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. First of all, a huge welcome to Rebecca who's joining us from San Francisco. And I suppose I have to ask, as you always do, what have you been doing during lockdown, Rebecca? Have you been writing something? Have you been busy? Yeah, I have another book coming out in October, but I've also been joking all through this that I've been sheltering in place since 1988 when I left my last job and started as a freelance writer. I've had a fairly easy time of it compared to people with small kids, well, women with small kids at home, people who lost their jobs, people whose jobs got dangerous. My job is to wander around in words and books. Yeah. You, and that's you, what I'm doing mostly, plus working a bit with an amazing group called the Anti-Sewing Squad. That's A-U-N-T-I-E. Oh, Anti-Sewing <laughs> Yes, a oh, oh. radical feminist group making masks for the front line and the vulnerable and marginalized populations. And have you found writing easy during lockdown or have you found it a terrible distraction i found it relatively easy and uh, i used to say because i the freelance writing uh, life comes with people wanting you to go places constantly i used to say i had life arrhythmia and the first month of the pandemic i slept so deeply because it was the first time probably i'd you know and i aborted my book tour on march 10th last year after aggressively arguing with my publishers over and over that we were in the midst of a global crisis and it did not behoove me to go around spreading germs and gathering crowds <laughs> and so then I, then I started to have the possibility of life i guess it would be rhythmia if it's not arrhythmia you know and it's it's been horrific to see the failures of boris johnson and donald trump and the other patriarchs of the pandemic and the suffering and the death and i know frontline medical workers and the rest but yeah. i had a pretty easy time of it partly because my life was already pretty sheltery in place when i wasn't running around in public and on airplanes how about well, you I, oh um I, i've been slobbing at home you know spending uh, when it started i kind of thought i've got to get exercise every day i must go out and i must walk around the block and and I did that for a week or so, and then I got very bored with the block. And I found that I've just sat at home like you. I'm very lucky I don't have young kids. I've got a garden. And in some ways, it's I've been one of the privileged in lockdown. You know, it's been it's been irritating, but it's been for us no more than irritating. You know, so, you know, we we can only think, you know, that we've got off so lightly compared with a lot of people who've really a worked a lot harder than, and suffered. You know, so. It's been so interesting to me because there are disasters, physical disasters, you know, uh, bombings, earthquakes, where people more or less all experience the same thing. And the radical individuality of people's experiences from their work got more intense to their lost their work to it was very easy to move their work to home, you know, to ho no home, home full of people and no Internet, yeah. lovely, gracious home to retreat to has been one of the peculiarities of this is that the disparities ex experience mean, well, therapists say no two people have the same family. And uh, it almost feels as though none of us have had the same pandemic. No, I think that's right. And we did discuss talking about patriarchy and pandemics. 
or patriarchy <laughs> as a pandemic. We might get onto that. <laughs> I, I, I want to take you back to start with to this time last year when we were due to talk about uh, yeah. the appearance <laughs> of <laughs> this great book, uh, Recollections of My Non-Existence. And now at least we've got a great excuse to do that virtually because its paperback version is just coming out. And it's a all kinds of ways. It's a, a memoir. It's, a, I think, a, a really haunting piece of writing which takes you down into the places of San Francisco. I mean, you, you described the apartment that you lived in for 20 years. And uh, by the time I'd finished the book, I kind of felt that I'd half lived there too. I knew it had two rooms and it was wonderfully light. But in a sense, it was, a, it was about a lot more than a conventional memoir. It seemed to me that what you were talking about was the silencing of women. It was a memoir about women not being heard. Now, have I got it right? Can you Absolutely. tell us a bit more about it? I know it was really two, uh, you know, two strands braided, to, you can't braid two things, twisted together, one of which is my very eclectic and individual trajectory to become that thing not that many people become a published writer. But that, of course, played against the universal experience of women, because to be a writer is to be a person who's trying to have a voice, which means you you are demanding to be heard, to be a participant, to be treated as a person capable of speaking. And of course, the condition of young of women in general, but particularly of young women, more so than not that we're perfect or anything now, was to be treated as you know, women should be seen and not heard as a person almost incapable of bearing witness to history, to the, the thing that just happened five minutes ago, to what really happened alone in the room with that man. And so I and I'd written, you know, I've been writing kind of feminist critique and journalism really since 1985, often with lots of statistics dealing with public cases that are moments to reconsider the broad picture. And I also wanted to write about using myself as the most available uh, specimen, just that in what is the interior life of a person who is most of us, uh, women being the slight majority on earth, who live in a condition where men wish to silence us, harm us, um, and, murder us, torture us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and how much of yeah. that is tied to voice or voicelessness. I thought what you put very well in the book was the idea that the kind of shorthand phrase having a voice is partly about not being able to tell your story but it goes together what what really compounds voicelessness is not whether you can shout it out but whether anybody's prepared to listen to you and so you have endless examples within contemporary and historical culture, not women just who can't speak, although I think a lot of women find that they're effectively silenced. But if they do speak, nobody listens. Yeah, or they're humiliated, shamed, blamed, punished. And you look at Harvey Weinstein sentenced to prison at last after, after 40 years of getting away with everything short of murder. And he had an entire apparatus of you know, ex-Mossad spies, uh, some of the most powerful lawyers in the United States, a production company, huge sums of money devoted to silencing his victims yeah. Yeah. by terrorizing them, discrediting them, convincing everybody they were crazy, destroying their careers, etc. You know, so when we say we don't, uh, somebody doesn't have a voice, we really mean they don't have listeners, or that the price of speaking up is worse than the price of remaining yeah. silent. That, and someone has put them on mute. You know, it's been a bit yeah. like being on a Zoom yeah. call where, where the mute button, you know, they might be talking, but the mute button's on. And what I think is very interesting about what about the book is in a sense, you, you rightly say, look, not just women who are muted. There are all kinds of non-authoritative white male groups who are, are, are muted. Mm -hmm. But you see this issue very clearly through the prism of gender, I think. Yeah, you know, and that's been my experience of it. But, you know, I live in a, I've spent my whole adult life in a white minority city. 
and I'm very cognizant of my whiteness as well as my femaleness. The lives of the immigrants and the indigenous people, the black people in the neighborhood I grew up in, in San Francisco and et cetera. So yeah, but and I think it's also worth saying just to stick with the question of voice that there are women who speak up and are not believed or ridiculed or shamed or punished. Yeah. There are women who don't speak up because they know that that's, you know, no good will come of speaking up. But there are also women who lose confidence in their own ver their own capacity yeah. because we do live in patriarchy and it does seep into us. And you see women doubting themselves. And thanks to Donald Trump, the phrase gaslighting, which was used mostly for personal things, is now used for public life. Yeah. But there is a kind yeah. of gaslighting where women are told. And I wrote about that when I wrote Men Explain Things in 2008. It took me until I was almost 40 to have that experience I constantly had of a man saying, no, that didn't happen. You're not there. You know, I am the one who can accurately describe what I just did, not you. And it really yeah. took me almost 40 to say, yeah. fuck you. I, I, I am a writer of history. I know exactly what happened. And I'm not yeah. going to let you wriggle yeah. out of this. Yeah. And so yeah. there's also that self-doubt because women buy into it. And of course, women are also often complicit in believing men more than women uh, yeah. and not believing a woman or or buying into the what was she wearing oh she yeah. was a sexual being yeah. she was yeah. a rape victim i mean you talk very nicely about both the the silencing the 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 muting the not being listened to ness of women but but you put that in a kind of wider context of the erasure of women and you make a fantastically obvious point but one that was uh, i'd never just kind of got before which is why is it that when you're asked to choose a kind of password code word for your you know your internet banking or something one of the questions is your mother's maiden name commonly asked and that's because your mother's maiden name is something that no one is going to know you know it's been whited out <laughs> and the fact that we kind of use it as that secret word is actually telling us more, uh, yet more, about the idea that her previous to married name existence now is non-existent. She doesn't exist. Yeah, or it's a secret. You know, it's not public knowledge. She's, you know, her name is unknown. It almost feels like, uh, you know, while your great public voice of women essay from 2014 women being told, you know, all the ways that they are not to be participants. Your children will not carry your name. I, know, I live in a society where a lot of progressive women keep their maiden names, which means that their children don't have the same name as them, which can provoke real trouble when they need to suddenly take charge in an emergency. And I think just another kind of erasure. You haven't lost your name, but you also haven't perpetuated it. You haven't birth. given it. The person, yes, the person who came out, you know, and I do know people yes including one of my nephews who have their mother's maiden name as a middle name, but he will be known as a Solnit and not a Rodriguez for most yeah. of his life. I have my name, but my children have my husband's name. <laughs> I don't like the name Beard very much, so I'm quite happy. There is something kind of paradoxical, though, that I felt about you know, talking about women's voice and particularly trying to explain to people about the feeling of not being heard, what it's like to be voiceless. Because in a sense, in some ways, we're living examples of the paradox here. We've got hundreds and hundreds of people very happily, we're really happy to, to welcome, you know, onto our virtual conversation. Many of those hundreds of people are listening to us quite carefully. And yet we're the people who are voicing the problem of voicelessness. I mean, how do you square that circle? I think that, you know, when you had that experience of being excluded or erased, one of your responsibilities is to speak for that category of silenced people, you know, if you're black, yeah. to speak for blackness, if you're undocument an undocumented immigrant, yeah. if you're trans and not supposed to exist at all. And um, so, you know, and part of it is we live in a changing society. I, you and I would have had very different lives if we yeah. had been Born 50 or 100 years earlier yeah. and yeah, um, my mother's life was radically different than mine and she 
Gloria Steinem is not that much younger than my mother. Woman broke through, but it was a struggle. And so I think part of it is to say, here we are. It's very lovely to have arrived at this place of visibility and income from it, et cetera, but it was a struggle. And we know that just because we can do this doesn't mean that it happens to everyone. And because you can talk about classics and I can talk about yeah. California history doesn't mean that the next woman to be raped is going to go to the police station. The police are going to say, we are beautiful feminists who absolutely trust the capacity of women to bear witness and will now investigate without bias. I mean, I think it's quite important to get through the myth that people like you and, and to some extent like me have always been able to do this. I mean, I think what's very moving about your book is, you know, you go back to your early time in your, you know, that apartment in San Francisco and you can't speak either. I mean, now you look so fluent, so influential, so wonderfully cogent that the idea that there was ever a moment in which Rebecca Solnit didn't communicate with the world seems absolutely unbelievable but it, but it's true for you and it's certainly true for me that I spent the first 10 years of my academic career never being able to open my mouth in a seminar somehow we both learned but yeah. my god it was a struggle yeah. my god it was a struggle yeah and you know I really had to find people in places where speaking up was not just going to be mocked and punished or I wouldn't just be talked over. I still often speak in a rush because I'm so anxious to get my words in before somebody cuts me off. I've noticed with the people I consider great storytellers who are often men that the beginning of their talent is the confidence that they hold the floor, people are happy to listen to them and they don't need to be in a rush. And yes. I, I am not there yet, but I, I see it, I admire it, I yearn for it. And yeah, yes. and part of what I wanted to do with this book also, because we often talk about physical violence as a sort of remote island that some people have visited, but it not really part of our daily life. I wanted to write as somebody who has been around directly and indirectly many kinds of violence against women, including domestic violence growing up and street harassment, rape attempts, but not an actual rape, friends who have been almost been murdered. Yeah. Women come to me every week with stories about rape and by domestic violence, stalking. And, but I also wanted to convey how inseparable that is from the problem of voicelessness. And yeah. an easy way yeah. to convey it is that in a world where women had equally equal power of voice, I can only see two potential Harvey Weinstein narratives. Either he would have committed one crime, the woman had would have had confidence in her society, and the law would have spoken up, everyone would have taken appropriate measures, he would have been so severely punished, there would have been no Harvey Weinstein, great Hollywood producer and manipulator. Or he would have committed zero felonies against women because he would have known he couldn't get away with it. He, All of his crimes were predicated on the correct assumption until 2017 that he could override his victims' voices in various ways and prevent them from being heard. And he was right, and Bill Cosby was right, and so many of these yeah. men yeah. were right. And yeah. so this voicelessness, which also exists in social life, public life, in trivial ways, in academic and professional settings is central to it. And so I wanted to reconnect physical violence to the larger picture. And a story I tell repeatedly in this book about being a very young woman is not just that something unfortunate happens to me, but then I go and try and tell people about it and they don't believe me. I have a professor who doesn't believe that I was mugged and had all my schoolwork stolen, so I have to retake all my photojournalism photographs, which I don't have time to do and won't be as good, but he clearly doesn't believe me, and I'm too young to think I'll just march down and get the police report, you know, and the police were their own weird experience. They loved me being a white victim girl, you know, and then my second book was buried with by an alcoholic male publicist who made sure nobody got a copy and told me yeah. he had booked me into bookstores across the American West. I got onto the road for a 7,000 mile road trip only to find out he had never actually called any of these bookstores and he, and he was purposely yeah. destroying yeah. my book and I'd been telling 
my editor and other people at the press the whole time about what I thought was a pretty significant book about in, yeah. you know, nuclear and indigenous history. And everybody just responded, oh, young ladies are so overwrought and emotional and subjective. Just calm yeah. down, little Missy. And then finally, I was able to prove that he was a pathological liar out to destroy my book. And it was too late. This book I released for an unknown author, yeah. the window had closed for the book to get any real attention. And so it wasn't just that I had one hostile man, you know, or one untoward incident. It's that then the people I went to couldn't, wouldn't, didn't want yeah. to hear me. And that I think is so central to female experience. And yeah. we don't talk about it the way we talk, you know, about beatings and rapes and murders. Also what you capture very well, I think, is the way this, that kind of sense of the need to be aware, the need to be careful, feeling that you have to be vigilant, actually insinuates itself into every bit of your daily life, the choices you make, where you go. And I think it's perhaps in an interview that I've listened to with you recently about some guy who came back from uh, jogging in the pandemic and said, it wasn't any fun anymore because you had to kind of take a lot of care about how close you got to people. And his partner then said, or he said, you know, welcome to my world. That's what women have to do the whole time. You have to watch who you're near, who you're next to. And white men don't have to do that. Bye. I had a very funny conversation with one of my brothers who, like me at the time, lived near Golden Gate Park, our thousand acre park in Western San Francisco. And he said, oh, I always run on the back trails because I hate the cars. And I just looked at him and said, I always run on the main, you know, the main roads because, you know, the shrubberies are not safe. And it was one of those things where it was just so clear. He had never thought twice about, you know, who lurked in the shrubberies. And, you know, and of course, lots of women did get assaulted in that park and a few murders took place, et cetera. And that's also one of the things, because we also, there's been a number of great memoirs that are centered on an act of extreme violence. Roxanne Gay talking about being gang raped at 12. You know, but they often are, and it's not the fault of the authors, but they're often construed to suggest either this very terrible and extreme thing happened to you or you got off scot-free. And that's also what I wanted to bear witness to is that, as I say in the book, it gets you even if it doesn't get you. Girls and young women are constantly being told in indirect ways that men would like to annihilate you and we will do nothing about it as a society. We will treat male violence as a kind of rain and it's your job to have galoshes and an umbrella to curtail your freedoms and your participation and your adventurousness, your outspokenness and your erotic energies to remain safe from a problem we will do nothing about. But also, and so you have to think about it all the time, and it might mean you just don't do things or you do things thinking about, you know, should I go here? Is that man following me? Why did this guy sit next to me on the train? And then also you're impacted because it happens because it happens to people like you, which, you know, you can either take as this could also happen to me because I am also a woman or just because you care about them. And one of the things I think is important to this book is that I wrote it like all of my other books, everything I've written since I was 19, on a desk given to me by a woman who was almost murdered for leaving her partner. And so I have not been almost murdered, but I have lived since 19 with knowing the scars from 15 knife wounds of a woman who almost bled to death. I know several other women who've almost been murdered. And that has an impact, you know. You know, I wrote this because I really wanted, to, after doing the much more journalistic, um, polemical stuff, I really wanted to convey what is the interior life of a person who lives in a world that full of individuals, a gender, collective forces, cultural modeling that wants to annihilate and erase and, you know, utterly disempower you. You mentioned a bit ago, um, men explain things to me. And I, I suppose certainly within the UK, when you became a household name was with that essay, men explain things to me because it absolutely captured another aspect, in a sense, another aspect of 
the silencing of women and perhaps you just just very briefly for those who don't know i'm sure most people do if you just share the moment that was captured in the title and then explain things to me and here i am talking to professor dr mary beard explained to about the classics by men on twitter yeah and i've published a book on uh, the sort of british photographer at who emigrated to california Edward Moybridge, who laid the foundation for what would become motion pictures with his technological innovations, eclectic character overall. A friend took me to this very posh, you know, an annoying party when I was driving to New Mexico early in the 2000s. And uh, the book came in um, 2003 when the book came out, actually. And the the very powerful, you know, wealthy man whose party it was in his fancy house at 8,000 feet in Colorado said to me, so I hear you've written a few books. And I think that, that the Moybridge book was my seventh or so book. So I said, well, several actions and, and what are they about? And I started to tell him about the Moybridge book and he cut me off to tell me about the very important Moybridge book, which it turned out he'd only read the New York Times review of it. Part of what was fascinating about that encounter is not only was he failing listening 1A, but it, he clearly could not conceive that the book that had gotten this very good review in the New York Times was written by this blonde, you know, whatever I was taken for at, you know, 40, was I 40 then or in my 30s, you know, sitting before him. And he assumed that, you know, this sounds kind of like your classics. His was to tell and mine was to listen. And my friend kept interrupting him and saying, that's her book, that's her book. And he didn't hear her either till the fourth time she said it. And then he kind of like fell ashen because oh his world God. had been so radically rearranged. But I want to say about that, it's a very funny story. At the same time that being treated as somebody who should listen and not speak as incompetent in your own field, can have very serious repercussions. And the thing that shocked me when I sat down in 2008 to write the essay, Men Explain Things, and one great outpouring is that I began with this thing that was really just ridiculous and annoying. And in a sense, I ended with a story I'd been told when I was much younger by a nuclear physicist, since we have a nuclear bomb designing community in the Outer Bay Area, it was the uncle of my then boyfriend, who told a story about a woman running out of her house naked in the middle of the night in his posh suburb, claiming that her husband was trying to murder her. And he made it very clear he assumed that A, this was funny, and B, she was crazy, um, which women are very often called as a reason not to listen to them. And I asked him in my sort of incipient feminist way, why did you assume she was crazy and her husband wasn't trying to kill her? And he said, and this is such a pervasive assumption, that, you know, he made it clear he could not conceive of an upper middle class white man being homicidal, but he found it all too easy to conceive of an upper middle class uh, white woman as being incapable of bearing witness to reality and therefore untrustworthy and therefore not to be believed. And of course, so many women have been murdered because they are not listened to when they say, you know, my ex-boyfriend, my husband, my stalker is trying to murder me. And therefore, not having a voice is literally a matter of life and death over and over and over again. And not, you know, mansplaining is the the narrow end of a wedge that ends up with silence in life or death situations. I've got a, a question I've been wanting to put to you ever since I first read that essay, um, which is, do you have any clue what the reaction of this man who didn't listen to you was when he learned about your essay? Yeah, when he learned that I'd written the book, the really funny thing, first, he, he really just was yeah. staggered. And I think he was probably a little embarrassed. My read of what happened next is he realized that because this was like this totally tough hunting, social climbing, posh bit of Aspen that I didn't like at all, but you know, I was visiting somebody who dragged me out, you know, as couch surfing across the American West, who dragged me off to this party, was that he was, oh, this person is of much higher status than I thought she was. And I, and I failed to use that to my social advantage at this party. I should have waved her around quite a bit more. 
though, is also this thing where, you know, it's it's sort of like one of those antiques roadshow things where it's like, oh, this sketch turned out to be a Picasso. I should have sold it for more money. Yeah. I find myself very much hoping that, you know, she went into a bookstore and uh, picked up when the essay was published in the book. He picked up the book, he opened it, he read the essay and he thought, my God, that's me. And well, that years wonder, later, yeah, I wonder, I yeah, wonder. It's funny because nobody's bothered to figure out, which is not very hard, who is the translator who mansplains to me much more nastily a little bit later when I say that the amazing feminist anti-war group Women's Strike for Peace helped destroy the House Un-American Activities Committee in the U.S. And he scathingly, patronizingly told me I didn't know what I was talking about. It just seemed worthless to try, you know, now I would come back with a, some very hearty form of fuck you. But I actually, you know, he was so nasty, I just backed off, went back to my hotel, went on whatever version of the internet was available. I think I was able to do sort of, you know, look at snippets of books and confirm that I was completely right and he was completely wrong and he was completely confident. And I had had some real self-doubt. And that's part of what's so interesting is that, you know, when the man was explaining about the very important book, I actually had this moment of thinking, did somebody else publish a Moybridge book this year that I somehow didn't notice? Which seems rather unlikely, but there is this thing I confront in myself. And I think that so many women do, you're taught to, that men are more worthy of speaking, that, you know, your Persephone and uh, your Penelope and their, you know, being told that she's not qualified to speak, to shut up. And uh, so I did have this moment of like, maybe he's right. And of course, that was ridiculous. You know, you tend to hear about books in your own field. In the end, even though he's never named, I get this, this kind of glow of satisfaction that he was outed in print in a way that has been so influential across, across yes, the world. His antics have been a bestseller yeah. in Korean and uh, yeah. various yeah. other languages. He's helped, you know, I didn't coin the word mansplaining, but it's now in dozens of languages. Yeah. And um, thank you, so Paige Berkey. I used to joke that essay would become obsolete if men would just stop doing this. But I do run what I call the the mansplaining Olympics, where mostly on Twitter, I see extraordinary examples. The most recent was a scientist who was told that she should read some scholarly article on the subject by so-and-so to understand. And she had very long hair, as you do. And she pulls aside her hair so at this conference, and the guy can see her name tag. And it's like, I am Dr. Jones. I do feel there's a lot of people who should die of shame. There is a Japanese tradition of committing suicide out of shame. People don't really die of shame, but it does happen so regularly. It's great we at least have a framework for it, but you know, the mansplaining Olympics has new contestants all the time. It's also horrible, and I have heard from everyone, from women electricians to women astronomers being treated as incompetent and unworthy of speaking in their own field. And that exacts a toll. You have to fight harder to be heard you know, you're always swimming against the currents, rather, you know, and all these men who think they're amazing swimmers are swimming with it. There's a hell of a lot of men on Twitter who know an awful lot more, so they think about the fall of the Roman Empire than I do, and make it very clear. The list of annoying men who try to explain Rome to you. Yes, and it gets it's very, very long. It's maybe very, very long. Maybe, maybe there should be a Mary, Mary Beard event in the Mansplaining Olympics. A wonderful <laughs> rabbi I'm friends with has offered to throw a bar, a bat mitzvah for the essay, which is turning 13 in April. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I have yet to organize it, but I, but we, I will uh, with a couple other, you know, semantically qualified people. And we will have to have a Mansplaining Olympics event with yeah. some screenshots. You're on, Rebecca. I, I, will, uh, I will email you for some submissions. I'd like to move just a little bit to you. There was because there was one sentence in Recollections of My Non-Existence that really struck me when you, at a certain point you say something like, I've ended up doing what I always wanted to do. You know, that I, I, I'm doing, I wanted to be a writer and I've become a writer. And I think a lot of people would feel fantastically envious of someone who can say that. 
And I wondered how you thought that it, A, what the sacrifices were for you in making that happen, because it now with, you know, 20 plus books, etc., it looks, it looks effortless. And we know it wasn't. But how it happened to you that, you know, how do you get in a position where you say, uh, I'm now, I've, I've sort of done what I wanted to do. I'm doing what I wanted to do. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And actually looking at your trajectory, reading some of your wonderful LRB pieces going back to the 90s and before reminded me, in some ways I wanted to be an academic, but my parents more or less cut me off at 17 and I didn't have any adults to explain how you afford graduate school, et cetera. I, I might have become a medievalist or something, and I read quite deeply at various points in various periods, but... Uh, I had really fallen, I had been in love with stories since, you know, as long as I can remember, even before I learned how to read. And then I learned how to read, spent a moment wanting to be a librarian because they get to live with books all day, and then realized somebody actually writes the books and made my third and final career decision. And it's very easy to decide to be something. It's not so easy to actually become it. And uh, there were periods, and I got a master's in journalism as, from Berkeley, the affordable university, the practical degree, and got an editorial job and really thought I would write on the side, be, you know, an editor or some, some kind, of, kind of information worker. I left that job for another job that didn't pan out, ended up on unemployment, started my first book thinking I was taking a year off in 1988. And never quite got around to finding the next job was part of it. And it's interesting because I didn't really aim very high. Nobody had big expectations for me. And in some ways, I've, it feels fruitful. I've seen so many men, white men, who think they're going to write the great American novel but can't be bothered with doing all the things you do along the way before you're competent to write a novel. Actually, I think the great American novel is a terrible idea anyway. But it has a lot to do with why American men write very large, thick books. But it, in history, I call them big books by blokes about battles, but I think the white American novel is a fictional equivalent of a yeah. big book by a bloke about yeah. a battle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but proceeding uh, by increments, I think, was actually very, you know, I was writing 800-word reviews. I wrote a lot of reviews as a young art critic. I ended up in the visual arts for various reasons. You know, and then I wrote longer things, and then I got a, managed to get a contract for my first book, was terrified and then I convinced myself that a book was a non-fiction book was essentially a series of connected essays and if I could write a 5,000 word essay I could write a chapter and then my second book happened and uh, I was kind of off and running but I did live I joked you know I started joking about 10 years ago lots of people want to be now but nobody wanted to be me for the preceding 15 years I lived like a graduate student until about 20 minutes ago I have worked very hard and like in a wonderful way, reading and writing is exactly what I wanted to do. But you know, I would, when people ask me what my routine is, I often say I get up in the morning and putter around till bedtime, which is what it feels like. And then I do the same thing the next day. You know, I didn't have kids. I didn't, I had a lot of friends who would have a, you know, save up money and then go off and have adventures and kind of feel completely unobliged to produce until the money ran out, which was very different than my kind of obsessive fulfilling book contracts and uh, writing deadlines. It was really, it was both incredibly wonderful and a great deal of focused work and a fair amount of poverty in the early years, and uh, which is why that rent control department, thank you, Mr. Young, mattered so much. Yeah. Can I just absolutely finish by going back to where we started about the pandemic yeah. you were talking about what you've been doing what i've been doing it, if you kind of become the cultural critic historian of the future looking back what difference do you think the pandemic is going to have made the kind of issues that you're interested in and first of all i keep saying for climate change the two obstacles we face to making the profound changes we need to leave the age of fossil fuel behind and go to largely carbon neutral societies, we're told that we don't have the money and the pandemic has proved that governments can pull money out of thin air and the US pulled $3 trillion out of its socks at the beginning of the pandemic. Another other argument is 
we can't make radical changes in how we live. And we just made radical changes across most of the world in how we live. So I think we've taken away the excuses that we can't do things differently than we have. A lot of us more affluent people have scaled down some of our consumerism. We don't need new clothes when we're not going anywhere. We're not taking carbon intensive vacations. You know, we're doing a lot of low key things like gardening and walking around the neighborhood. And I, I think a lot of people feel like we were suckered into a consumerism that meant being frantic to pay for it and frantic to do and buy and have and see it all. And I, I'm just fascinated to see who comes out of the pandemic individually and, and collectively saying, we don't want to be who we were on March yeah. 1st, 2020. Yeah. We don't want to yeah. go back. Yeah. We want to go yeah. back to some of the good things, but yeah. we don't need yeah. to go back to yeah. all of them. It's been quite yeah. an experiment in, you know, whole societies radically changing everything. I also think so, we might need yeah. universal basic income because so many people lost their jobs. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, I'm as I suppose picking up what you say that there's no way this has not been the most terrible tragedy, you know, socially and individually. But I suppose now those of us that have come through it have got some kind of obligation to turn it to some sort of good that we are going to do things differently. We're going to learn from this. We're not going back to the old normal. It's, we're going to we're going to change things for the better after this. That and that's what we owe to the people who've suffered and died. Really, that it wasn't. It wasn't for nothing. Absolutely. Uh Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Rebecca, this has been a complete pleasure, but I've got a, a whole queue of questions here, which we won't be able to get through all of them. And I just want to start with, with one here from uh, Jane Troll really about Black Lives Matter and, you know, what you might call white-splaining, would you have written the book any differently, do you think, if it had come, uh, if you'd been writing after the 2020 Black Lives Matter global uprisings? Would that have made a difference what you, to what you said? I don't know. I don't know that it would have. I really wanted to focus you know, continue the feminist project I've been on since 1985. I did write, a, you know, for The Guardian during the uprising about the fact, you know, things like the fact that the violence that matters is police violence, it not, you know, and things like that. I started writing about police killings of black men in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, and uh, it, it's a long story, helps send cops to jail um, in New Orleans because of that. And, you know, and, and it's a funny thing. I've been writing about race. And my second book, the one that the drunken publicist suppressed, was about indigenous genocide and cultural genocide. I had a piece come out earlier this week about John Muir's racism and how much that racism consisted of erasing Native people from a landscape portrayed as virginal and untouched and uninhabited. But I, I don't know, you know, and there's a way in which I feel like I have not, I have written a lot about race, I've written a lot about gender, I have not been as intersectional as I could be. But one of the things nobody's ever asked me about in recollections of my non-existence is that it has a male hero, his name is Mr. Young, he's a black World War II veteran who was the manager of the building I moved into at 19. 
he kind of covered for me because I wasn't really eligible to become a tenant there. I didn't make, I wasn't, didn't have enough money and credit and resources at that point in my life. And he became, you know, and he was this extraordinary figure, you know, a real friend for the several years we shared a building and who gave me the space in which I, beautiful little apartment in which I would become a writer and whose low rent because I kept it for 25 years and it was rent control, thinking rent control policy, really made the career I've had possible. And so there is, and it was a black neighbor, it wasn't a black neighborhood, which I wrote about, which actually taught me quite a lot on partly just the, you know, the gospel singing coming out of the churches on Sunday mornings, but also the banter on the street. And I'd been around these kind of frozen white people a lot of my life who used words in very transactional ways and to see just the sheer verbal joy and pleasure of interactions was you know so there's actually quite a bit in in the book yeah. you know and uh, and it was also just so interesting in some ways being in that apartment because I was very poor but also real and and I learned a lot from getting to know the neighbors also realizing that I did have an enormous amount of social mobility and um, to move beyond the neighborhood and that there was a way that for the black people in that neighborhood, which was slowly gentrifying, it was a kind of ghetto in which they weren't, you know, didn't have the same kind of mobility. So, so blackness is in the book as Mr. Young, as the neighborhood and what it taught me. There's a way in which Me Too is treated as, you know, which I think is just like a next phase of feminism that had been going on for years and years, that just as Me Too was not really, you know, a supernova, something already happening. I think the the last summer in the U.S. was an expansion of what began as the response in some ways to Trayvon Martin's murder and to police killings in 2014 of Michael Brown, et cetera. But also, um, you know, Rosa Parks was dealing with stuff like this in the 1940s and 50s. Ida Wells was dealing with that 50 years before, you know, the NAACP was founded to address stuff like this in the 19th century. So that's really what happened last summer was amazing and extraordinary and powerful and transformative. But I think it's dangerous to view it as, as new, uh, just as it's dangerous to view Me Too as the Martian spaceship of feminist upheaval landed and rather than women, you know, and allies had been doing the work all along and suddenly it had a little bit more traction. Yeah. I've got a very different question here from Beverly Nadus. Have you considered writing a piece of speculative fiction that imagines the world post-patriarchy because some of your writings are moving in that direction, including your reworking of fairy tales, which we haven't talked about. Um, any... Don't have the 37-hour conversation, alas. But, uh, you know, the word fiction, it's really funny because as a nonfiction writer, I've often been asked if I'm, you know, I, when I was, part of why I have a degree in journalism is that essay, essays in nonfiction were not treated as literature when I was young and they were not taught in writing programs and fiction was always treated as like the throne you aspired to and people would often not so much now tell me like but aren't you really going to old, aren't you working towards writing a novel I'm fiction for me fiction is like painting non-fiction is like photography and uh other than children's stories I just don't see myself going into fiction and I'm actually very cranky about a certain kind of overconfident assertion about what's going to happen. My work on hope has been about how surprising history is as, as it unfolds, how we don't know what's going to happen next, partly because what's going to happen next depends on what we do in the present. You know, a lot of lazy Americans are very fond of what I call elite peasant fatalism, this kind of announcement that it's inevitable that Trump will be reelected or this legislation will never pass or, you know, or a woman will never be this and that, which means that they don't have to do anything about it. And of course, the future is something we're constantly constructing in the present by our participation or non-participation. So I also, I think there's a kind of speculative fiction that's, oh, this was what could happen if we do 
what we need to do. And I, lots of my friends have written very fun speculative fiction, Bill McKibben around climate and et cetera. But uh, that's not really how I work. I'm interested in freeing up the future as something we're making in the present and looking at the processes of making. That perhaps fits with um, Ernestine's question, which is how do you, if you do, stay positive about the future of women in the world? I often find myself overwhelmed by the heavy and depressing reality so many women face daily in our lives. I find it hard to see any significant change that might happen. Uh, and you do, uh, uh, you have some very gloomy messages, Rebecca, but you still come out as someone of immense quasi-optimistic drive. And I, I always say optimism is certainty that you know what's going to happen and it's positive and it's twin is pessimism, also very certain about what's going to happen, only negative. And instead I'm hopeful, which means we don't know what's going to happen. Somewhere in Terminator 2, they say the future is not yet written. And my hope is that we get to write it some. And around feminism, it's been a very interesting last, depending on how you count it, 35 years or 15 years or whatever, of saying a lot of attention to rape, torture, torture meaning all the, you know, including rape, domestic violence, and a lot of other horrible things that happen but also seeing how radically different the world is for women than the world that you and I were born into. And, you know, I was born into a, wor a world in which inequality in marriage, in work, in education, in medicine, in every possible field was cultural custom and permitted by law. And a lot of things were not taught, like domestic violence. Spousal, and spousal rape was not a concept, a man owned his wife. Your husband basically owned you, and if you didn't have a husband, you were supposed to be a spinster who should go sit in the corner and be pitied. And, you know, and there's just so many ways in which women were so much more oppressed, so much more voiceless. And a lot of my mother's rage and misery came out of that. And, I, you know, and the world has changed so much since... Thank, you know, I say thank you feminism a lot. It's changed because people decided, ridiculous though it might have seemed in the early 60s and early 70s to try and do it, to actually change the law, change the customs, demand that women be represented in parliaments and university governance and all sorts of organizations. And, you know, and a lot of subtle things happened. How do we conduct meetings to make sure that the confident people don't do all the talking. Feminists brought some extraordinary techniques into left-wing organizing in the 1970s. People often say, if you say there's been tremendous change, you say everything is okay. We don't have a lot of good language for saying things are so much better than they were. They're not nearly as good as they need to be. But And I think that's yeah. where we are. And they continue yeah. to change. And I've got two uh, interestingly matching questions here. One's from Angela saying, I often joke with friends that women nearing and over 50 gain the power of invisibility. Um, given the, the long-held practices of silencing women, and as a 57-year-old invisi fan, I ask, uh, can we use that hypothetical power, the power of the old invisible woman, to instigate or enact changes within the current social structure? What's about, what about the power of the old? And invisible is such an interesting concept. Of course, I've become a very, like you have become very visible because I'm, you know, I'm a public, public figure in some sense. I public, you know, I publish a lot and get to talk in moments like this. But I always think invisible to who is what we usually mean by that is that, you know, men no longer see us as sexually attractive and we don't get that attention. For somebody who suffered from, a lot of street harassment that often had an undertone or overtone or was outright menace and threat. I'm thrilled to be invisible in those ways. And I do walk down the street with a lot more confidence that I'm not going to have to deal with stuff like that. I'm the outright violent men assault, you know, babies and 90 year olds. You know, I don't feel like my life is utterly free of violence, but the kind of sleazy grab your bottom on the street, which would, you know, thank you, Parisian men, cat calls and smiles and things like that. You know, I'm being invisible to that is wonderful. But I also think to go back to the question of what Me Too was, I think Me Too was when 
a critical mass of people who believed women should be listened to and were credible witnesses took charge of the story. We finally had enough women judges or feminists, I'll just say feminists because lots of men were doing good work in this too, uh, journalists who took women's accounts, women's rights and women's accounts of those rights being violated seriously, etc. And so actually it's, it's really about who do you want to listen to you? And, if, and it would almost be, I, I can imagine a world in which men who no longer listen to women over 40 themselves become kind of invisible because women over 40 are running a lot of stuff. <laughs> and uh, you can't really ignore a prime minister or a senator. Or we do have the Elizabeth Warrens of the world to look to with adoration. Very last question, and you can see why it matches that one, from Helen Major. Reading this book as a young woman, it felt like you had a specific audience in mind while writing, as if you were speaking quite directly to me and people like me. Is that just the skill of the prose, or did you have a specific audience in mind when you were writing recollection? And it's always interesting, do you, you know, in a way I wanted to help those of us who had these experiences name and recognize and take them seriously. At the same time, when I find that men have read this book, quite a lot of them are shocked. And I really, and it is this odd thing, feminism has been conducted as a conversation between women, as though it was women's work to change women's status. And I realized shockingly recently, although I think now, now it was several years ago, how ridiculous that was. We don't think of racism as something people of color should work out among themselves. We know that white people need to do, you know, the great, force of racism and that white people need to dismantle it, recognize it, do, do a lot of the heavy lifting. And so we, I do feel like we're in a, a phase where most women are feminists, we get it. A lot of men are backing off into crazy white right wing um, misogynist white supremacist circles. In the US there's this weird split Part of the rage of these young right-wing men is that they can't get laid because because they're horrible people, but they don't want to correlate that. They just want it to be bitches, be crazy. So yeah, I really wanted to validate this experience that's still happening to young women so much. I want, I, because the trauma doesn't leave you. I, for older women, I wanted also you know, them to have that recognition. But I also wanted people who aren't, you know, I wanted men to, understand what it's like to walk around looking you know in a woman's body and something i talk about in the book so little has shown them the world from a woman's point of view and i write about growing up reading books you know all the joseph conrad herman melville kind of books which might be great books in their way but are always centered on male protagonists and what it's what it's like to be only too good at being anyone but yourself and to identify with male protagonists, and the kind of damage of never getting to be yourself in the narrative. But the other damage that happens, I think, to straight white men of never having to be anybody else um, if they consume a lot of the popular narratives in film and literature. So yeah, I wanted men to read it too. Men, if you're out there, I see this long list of women's names among the attendees. Owen. Oh, it is Thursday in San Francisco, and here come the street cleaners with perfect timing. <laughs> and that's, uh, the street, street cleaners are obviously a perfect cue for us. Um, sadly, to have to say, thank you very much, Rebecca. Thank I, you so I, much, Mary. I, I, I really will recommend you down in Cambridge one of these days, and I'm I am so thrilled to be spending time yeah. even 7,000 miles apart. Thank oh, you so great. much. I'm, thank you, listeners. I'm, Thank you, feminism. Um, thank you. And I, I just want to say that I think what is for me made Recollection such a such an exciting read was that it was hard hitted, it was angry in places, it was angry where it ought to be angry. But in the end, there was there was a kind of joy in both the writing and the description and the pleasure of the apartment in which he lived that that made it you know really one of the most exciting feminist books that I've ever read so thank you very very much Rebecca. Thank you so much and I forgot to say thank you London Review of Books uh, one of maybe my favorite magazine which I'm so overdue to start writing for again 
great publisher of your work, Mary. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.